Father, you are, you are the strength of our hearts, and you are our portion forever. And how we just praise you and thank you and magnify your name and lift you up. We are not our own because we have been bought with a price. Father, as we look again at heart righteousness and the matter of keeping our hearts, I pray that each of us would keep our hearts with all diligence because we know that out of them are all the issues of life. Father, help us to uh, be godly because we know in godliness it is profitable. Godliness is profitable in all things. And we do want to be profitable with our lives. We want to redeem them wisely for your kingdom. We want to lay up treasures in heaven where it really counts. Father, I would pray now that as we open your word and hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ as he speaks to our hearts, I pray that we would we would heed them and that we would apply them. If we're convicted in any areas of our lives, I pray, Lord, that we would do what the word says, not just be hearers only, but doers of the word. And I pray, Lord, that whatever is accomplished here, it would be to your honor and your glory. For we do pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. The Lord's words regarding the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, had to do with protecting the sanctity of life. And, of course, that's what we looked at last week. Now, in this morning's lesson, we find that the Lord is going to speak about the seventh commandment. First of all, he talked about the sixth, and now he's talking about the seventh. Thou shalt not commit adultery. We're going to see that along with his next topic, which is divorce, that he talks about protecting the sanctity of marriage. So first of all, he talked about protecting the sanctity of life, and now you can see how he logically moves to talking about the sanctity of marriage. So in this fourth section of his sermon, which is entitled Reinterpretations of the Law, having to do with righteousness and morality, Jesus proceeded from talking about murder and its corresponding heart sin of anger to talking about adultery and its heart sin of sexual lust, which are two of the most powerful influences on mankind. The individual who gives reign to either or both of these influences, anger and lust, outside of the boundary of God's law, of course, will find that he is more controlled by them than he is in control of them. Now, the Jewish rabbis over the centuries had reduced the full intent of God's commandment against murder. We talked about this last week. To involve only the physical act itself. They had done similarly the same thing with the matter of adultery. They were therefore able to view themselves because they did interpret the commandment, thou shall not commit adultery, just to the overt act of adultery. They were therefore able to view themselves as righteous and innocent before God. As long as they did not lie with another man's wife, they saw themselves as meeting the requirements of this particular law. And we will see, however, how they did skirt around this law. When we look at the issue of divorce and how frequently and how easily they would write out bills of divorcement just so that they could, you know, marry a younger woman or whatever. So they did skirt the issue through through their bills of divorcement. 
But they failed to comprehend, or they did not want to understand, the same critical issue that most people today likewise fail to understand, and that is that sin originates in the heart and merely expresses itself with the external action of the hand. It originates in the heart, expresses itself through the hands. Sin begins with the attitude and is expressed by the action. Sin originates with the motive and it is expressed by the motion. For as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Proverbs 23, 7. Now it will be helpful for us if we continue to remember that Matthew 5.20 is really the focal point of this whole fourth division of the sermon. All that Jesus Christ has to say in this section, which goes from verse 21 through the end of the chapter, uh, verse 48, everything that he has to say in this section is commentary on his statement in verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 20, that except a person's righteousness would exceed or should, uh, will exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, or we could say religious people today, they will in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. So he is continuing then to unveil the self-righteous externalism of Israel's supposed moral giants, her spiritual leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees primarily, and to refute, he's continuing to refute, refute the erroneous traditions that the people had accepted from their ancient elders, remember we talked about that last week, as primarily recorded in the Talmud, that huge encyclopedic, uh, encyclopedic 22 volumes of commentary that the Jews had on the Torah, which is the five books of Moses. Now it's interesting that the Lord had just finished, in the preceding verses, he had just finished talking about what to do when there is a breach in a relationship and how it is so important to God for that broken relationship to be reconciled before a particular person takes his worship before him, you know, the sacrifices of their worship. Stop at the altar if you have a broken relationship and run and get that that taken care of before you return to God with your sacrifices of worship. So it's interesting, he had just finished talking about that, and now he proceeds to talk about probably the worst breach of any human relationship, and what is that? Adultery. Adultery is the breach of wedlock, isn't it? However, as we will see by the Lord's interpretation of God's word on adultery, it is not simply sexual unfaith, you know, the actual act of sexual unfaithfulness by a married person. It is that, of course. Adultery is that. But, according to the Lord's words and his proper interpretation of the Old Testament scriptures, adultery goes even further than that. It goes even deeper than the actual physical um, breach of the sexual relationship that should exist just between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, I should say. (laughs) Now, the New Testament, by the way, other than the Sermon on the Mount, what the Lord has to say in the New Testament, the rest of the New Testament also supports the fact that God is strongly opposed to the sin of adultery. Not just the actual sin, but the sin in the heart of adultery, the lust in the heart. And you can read, um, the only difference is that it's no longer punishable by death, 
as it was in the Old Testament days, adultery, if someone was caught in the act of adultery, they were to be stoned to death or strangulated, not just the adulterer, but the adulteress. And, of course, we live under the age of grace, and so the death penalty is no longer um, in existence for that. Now, um, what was I saying? You can look up such passages in the New Testament as, for example, Galatians 5, 19 to 21. I'll just leave that up there. There is also uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Hebrews 13, 4, where it says, Whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Revelation 2, 22 and other, many other passages talk about how God looks at adultery yet today. So it's not just Old Testament. It's all through the Bible. It makes no difference what circumstances are. It does not make any difference how much two people may say that they are in love with one another. There are no exceptions to the fact that sexual relations outside of marriage, period, are forbidden by God and are abominable in his sight, regardless of how the world looks at this situation today with its new morality. And all God's people said... Amen. Now, we should at least, in this situation, I feel like we should at least give the Jewish religious leaders some credit for recognizing the seriousness with which the Lord God looked upon the act of adultery. Uh, Granted, they did not take the prohibition far enough, you know, to the matter of the heart, but at least they obeyed and taught correctly regarding the deed of adultery. They did know more than many people today that adultery is a sin, and they punished it. Now, by the time of Christ, they had gotten a little bit lax in their punishing of adulterers. And we see that when they brought the adulterous woman to Jesus. They didn't normally do that, but they were doing it in purpose to trip him up. But remember, who did they not bring? They didn't bring the adulterer, and they were caught in the act. So we see they got a little bit lax on it. But yet, we've got to give them credit as far as our world today is concerned because at least they knew it was wrong and it was a sin. And for most of the centuries, they had punished it by um, stoning to death. All right, let's look at the passage now. We'll um, begin our discussion on adultery, and I have subtitled it Impurity. Let's look at verses 27 to 30, what the Lord Jesus had to say about it, his own words. He says in verse 27, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, that's the ancients, the elders, you know, the rabbis of past generations, ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already where? In his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. All right, we stop there because then he goes on to talk about divorce. Do you notice how many times Jesus has talked about hell so far in our Sermon on the Mount? Remember last week when he was talking about murder at the end of verse 22? He said, thou shalt be in the danger of hell's fire. And here he says, hell twice. Remember how we've said Jesus talks more about hell than he does about heaven? And the reason for that is how much he wants to warn men that there is such a place and he doesn't want them to go there. 
I just thought I would throw that in. All right. The Jewish people in general, in general, um, I don't think this is, I'll just stick that up for a minute. That was one of the verses I read to you from Hebrews 13.4. All right, here's our outline for today. The people in general had greatly, really greatly prided themselves on their morality because what they did is they would compare themselves with the openly sensual practices of all the pagan peoples around them. And were the pagan peoples around them sensual and sex Oriented and yes, indeed they were. They said one writer said that um, in Capernaum, Roman officials would haunt the promenades of the city with their paramours, their lovers, and prostitutes, and they would be dressed real gaudy. You know how prostitutes are, and very sensual, and and they would just they would just um, be out there parading in front of the people. You know, in the Jewish people, the women would be covered from head to toe. And they could hear often the sound of revelry upon the Sea of Galilee as their pleasure boats glided over the quiet waters. It would almost be like they'd have these wild orgy parties out on these boats on the Sea of Galilee. And all the people around the sea could hear what was going on in the laughter and the drinking, etc. You know, and it was just horrible. So we can imagine that the people listening to the Lord's sermon here may have expected to hear from him a stern denunciation of such open, immoral behavior. But again, they must have been shocked as they listened to words that laid bare the evil of their own hearts. You know, we always tend to look at others and say, oh, look how awful they are. And Jesus just cuts us wide open and exposes our own hearts to us. As it tells us in Psalm 119.96, The commandments of God are exceeding broad. I like that. The commandments of God are exceeding broad. Remember that. So when you just see the commandment, thou shall not covet, or thou shall not murder, or thou shall not commit adultery, don't just take it for face value. The commandments of God are exceeding broad. The true intent of God's commandments has an extremely wide scope because they reach into the inner affections and attitudes and motives and thoughts of a person. Um, As it says in Proverbs 4.23, keep thy heart with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life. Israel's religious teachers and most of the people that live in this world today needed, as people today need, a clearer understanding of the doctrine of sin. Understanding sin as God sees sin shows us the vast difference that exists between the spiritual requirements of a holy God and the low standards that are set as being sufficient by his fallen creatures. Is there a difference between what man sees as sin and what a whole and holy God sees as sin? Yes, a vast difference. Remember, the Lord sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So we're going to talk a minute about the doctrine of sin. The teaching of sin, as you may have found out in your life, is not a very popular subject at all today. 
Unfortunately, even in many churches, people just plain and simply do not like to think of themselves as sinners. They prefer to think that they are essentially good. Have you ever heard that? Well, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Or we even say, well, he's a good person. He was, yeah, he had to have gone to heaven because he was such a good person. Well, you know, that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that there is none good, no, not one. The Bible teaches that, uh, if you can see that down there, that there is none righteous. The Bible teaches that uh, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible teaches that our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Contrary to the theory that we are evolving upward, you know, from our animalistic beginnings, and contrary to the false religions that say we will even one day evolve so far upward that we will attain godhood ourselves, the Bible teaches that we are utterly lost and hopeless in our sins apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that actually the situation is getting worse and worse. It's not evolving upward. It's going downward. Evil men are waxing worse and worse. All you have to do is listen to the news every night, and you get that picture loud and clear. So a true understanding of the doctrine of sin, which is what Jesus was really attempting to teach in the six illustrations of this section of the sermon, he's trying to teach people the true doctrine of sin here, is it's necessary if a person is going to understand that he can never, ever be righteous in God's sight according to God's standards of holiness by way of his own self-efforts. We can never attain God's standards of holiness. It takes a good understanding of the biblical teaching of man's sin nature to drive a man or a woman to see his desperate need for one who is greater than himself to deliver him. In our hands, all of, I mean, in, in our hearts, all of us are, are murderers. Remember what we read? Whosoever is angry at his brother is a murderer. So in our hearts, all of us are murderers. We have all been angry without a justified cause at somebody. In our hearts, we're all murderers, and I've got news for you. In our hearts, we are also all adulteresses. All we like sheep have gone astray. There is no man that sinneth not. Now, why? The answer is provided for us, among other places, in James 2.10, where it says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. All it takes is one little sin, and we're guilty. And what do we deserve? Hell's fire. Just one little offense of the law. Can anybody ever keep it perfectly? Nobody. Except one, the Lord Jesus Christ. In presenting the kingdom standards of righteousness in the sermon, the Lord Jesus was showing us just how difficult it is for anybody to keep the whole law. Even if someone could manage to never break the laws, uh, all of them externally, who could ever, ever say that he had never harbored unjustified anger in his heart, never had coveted something that belongs to somebody else, uh, had never um, had a lustful thought or an unclean thought, had always loved his neighbor just as himself. You see, do you get the point? (laughs) 
impossible. So Jesus, and Jesus too was not suggesting, he was not at all suggesting that anyone could possibly meet these standards on his or her own. Instead, the utter impossibility of them was intended to make people despair of their own attempts at righteousness instead to seek his. That's the whole purpose of this. You know, it's not to make us say, oh, I'm just so awful. Because I do, when I study this, I just think, man, I am so bad. (laughs) But then, on the other hand, when I think of what he did and what he forgave and how great his righteousness is that was imputed to me, then it makes me glorify him even more and draws me closer to him. So that's the whole purpose of this section of the sermon, is that... We see how desperately we need him, and we seek his righteousness. That's the whole key of this section is um, Matthew 6.33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, right? And then all these other things will be added unto us. J.C. Ryle, in his expository notes, or thoughts, I should say, on the Gospels, says this about this, uh, these verses we just read on adultery. He says this, quote, The exceeding ignorance of man in spiritual things is what this sermon teaches us. There are thousands and ten thousands of professing Christians who know mo- no more of the requirements of God's law than the most ignorant Jews. They know the letter of the Ten Commandments well enough, and they fancy, like the young ruler... All these things I have kept from my youth up. They never dream that it is possible to break the sixth and seventh commandments if they do not break them by outward act or deed. And so they live on, they live on satisfied with themselves and quite content with their little bit of religion. You see, you hear people say, well, I'm not a murderer. I've never committed adultery. I'm fine, you know, so they're content with their little bit of religion. He, he goes on, he says, Ignorance of the real meaning of the law is one plain reason why so many do not value the gospel and content themselves with a little formal Christianity. They do not see the strictness and the holiness of God's Ten Commandments. If they did, they would never rest till they knew they were safe in Christ. End of quote. How true that is. That's the biggest problem, I think, among the church today, Christendom today, is that people underestimate their own sinfulness and they uh, underestimate God's holiness. As far as these two commandments are concerned, murder and adultery, most Christians feel that they are A-OK, that they are safe and sound with them. However, even though by God's preserving grace, someone may not have defiled herself or himself with the outward act of adultery, yet who among us can say that his or her heart is clean? My heart is clean, totally clean in this regard. Who among us has been totally free from impure imaginations or a wandering eye? Or an evil, unclean desire or thought? Who can honestly state that he or she has never, ever been guilty of a questionable um, joke? Or encouraging someone by laughing who, ha- who gives a, a questionable 
joke. You know what I mean? You know, some sordid little story, and people laugh. If you laugh, you encourage it, you know? So who of us could, be, could say that we're... And, and Ephesians 5.4 actually warns against this. It warns against foolish talking and jesting. This is serious. You know, what does it say? Uh, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, do what? Think on these things. If there be any virtue and if there be any praise. What is it? Think on these things. Anyway, those are the things we're supposed to be thinking on. But do we always? We have to admit, probably every one of us, that we don't always. All right, let's, that's all I'm going to talk about. I have more, I think, in your notes on the, the doctrine of sin. Let's move on, however, to talk about the deed of adultery. The word adultery in the Greek refers to the sexual union between a man and a woman when either one or both of them is married to someone else. It is laid out in the Mosaic Law as a heinous, abominable sin, punishable by death for both the adulterer and the adulteress. And that's in Leviticus 20, verse 10, the punishment. And it's for both of them. Now, there are at least three reasons why a person commits an immoral sexual act such as adultery. The first is ego, pride. The second is... um, Well, let me go back to the first. A person's ego is boosted or inflated by the sense of having conquered or taken or captured or controlled or experienced someone else other than their own spouse, someone else's spouse. So the first um, reason is ego or pride. Secondly, another reason is for attention or what they think is love. You know, this is where a lot of women fall into the trap. I think more men do it for ego and more women do it for attention or, you know, they, they think that this means that he loves her. Maybe her husband, she doesn't feel like her husband loves her so she goes out looking for true love. But it isn't true love at all, is it? No. And the third is for lust. Just the, the raw lust of the flesh. Making Adultery merely an, an external act made it very simple for the Jews to legislate. You know, if it was just an external act that they could legislate it very easily because a person was either an adulterer or they were not. And if you were caught, you were dead. And that made it very clear and simple, black and white. And it made matters easy for themselves to feel smug about themselves. They had obviously failed to understand God's prohibition of adultery in light of the tenth commandment. I put the last five commandments up here so you could see the order, and it's interesting how Jesus sort of follows this order as he goes through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, So they failed to see adultery in light of the tenth commandment, which reads, thou shalt not covet. You see, They did not see, nor did they perhaps wish to see, that adultery begins in the heart with coveting something or someone who belongs to someone else. Adultery actually begins with the covetous eye. 
and it ends with the stealing hand. Therefore, it also is a sin that breaks another commandment. Thou shalt not steal. And this is probably why the Lord mentioned these two members of the body in this section on adultery. Doesn't he talk about plucking out the eye or cutting off the hand? That's probably why. And no wonder then that adultery is such an abominable sin in the sight of God because it actually involves a breaking of a minimum of three of the Ten Commandments, doesn't it? It involves not only committing adultery, but stealing and coveting. Okay, that's the deed of adultery, the desire of adultery. In the Lord's illustration on murder, he had said that God's law prohibiting murder also included both heart sins of angry thoughts and also insulting words. So if you do either one of those, you are you know, just as guilty as a murderer. Well, we find here that he also took the concept of the act of adultery to a deeper level by stating that it includes the lustful look. He says, but I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Now the word looketh is given in the, in the present participle. And therefore what it means is a continuous look. Not just an accidental or an incidental look. It's not just like that. It's a continuous look. Uh, it's a purposeful gazing for the explicit intention of satisfying a lustful desire. If a man allows himself to gaze upon a woman, or a woman allows herself to gaze upon a man until his or her appetites are excited and his sexual thoughts are triggered, then God's holy law judges him or her to be guilty of adultery, even if that one never overtly indulges his imagination to the point of gratification. Now, please understand here that Jesus did not say that everyone who simply looks at a woman or looks at a man, you know, as I said, an involuntary glance, has committed adultery with her. Rather, what he is talking about is the one who looks to lust. Now, there is nothing wrong with simply looking at members of the opposite sex. Don't be like the, the brand of Pharisees who were called the bruised and battered Pharisees because they thought that it was a sin to look at a woman. I mean, they had the right concept, but they carried it too far. <laughs> and so whenever they saw that a woman was approaching them, they would shut their eyes, and they were constantly walking into things, bumping into walls and... <laughs> And so they literally called them the bruised and battered Pharisees. <laughs> you know, there's always a balance in everything. <laughs> there is nothing wrong with admiring the beauty of members of the opposite sex. But there is something wrong with looking lustfully with the express purpose of fantasizing uh, an affair. Or looking to mentally gratify some sexual desire. Or looking with the longing to possess. That's, this is the kind of looking that evidences an evil and an immoral heart. So in effect, Jesus was saying that there are three types of adultery. Actually, four. But there are three types we're talking about here. The fourth is spiritual adultery, you know, when we're not faithful to God. 
and we worship other idols. That's spiritual adultery. But here we're talking about not just bodily adultery. That's one type, you know, the actual physical act of bodily adultery. But there's also eye adultery and there's heart adultery. So the seventh commandment is broken even by a secret, though unexpressed or unmet, desire. You get that? All lusting after forbidden fruit is condemned by God. Mental infidelity makes one completely guilty before God. Now, neither was the Lord talking about the unavoidable and sudden exposure to sexual temptation such as occurred with, who do you think of in the Old Testament? Yeah, you immediately think of Joseph, who had that unexpected temptation when Potiphar's wife attempted to seduce him. Or uh, as when David looked out the tower window and saw Uriah's wife Bathsheba bathing. I always thought she had such a perfect name, don't you think? Bathsheba was bathing. (laughs) When, When a man unavoidably sees a woman dressed provocatively or not dressed at all, as in Bathsheba's case, there's no sin involved on his part if he turns away and resists that lustful temptation. It is the continuing gaze in order to satisfy lust that is sinful. Samson's downfall was his eyes, the eye gate. Uh, It says, then went Samson to Gaza and saw there an harlot. That's in Judges 16.1. He didn't just see her, you know, oh, there's a harlot. That's not what it means. It means he saw her with a longing look that he allowed to turn to lust. That was Samson's problem, wasn't it? His eyes, and it's very appropriate that he didn't get right with God until his eyes had been put out. The eyes are the inlet of a great deal of wickedness. The continual gazing of the eyes was also David's downfall. That's where he went wrong. Of course, he, he first of all went wrong because he should have been on the battlefield with his own soldiers. But he allowed his look to turn to a leer and mental adultery ensued. If he had simply turned his eyes away from the sight of the beautiful bathing Bathsheba. And the scripture does say that she was beautiful. And then it has a comma and says very. So she was spectacular. And he just kept looking. He should have turned away and he should have asked God's assistance immediately to put the temptation of the sight of her from his mind. And then he would have been all right. From 2 Samuel 11 verses 1 to 4, however, we find out that he did not turn his eyes away and unfortunately he uh, committed four sins in, in, in the process because he didn't take his eyes off of The sensual scene below, he not only lustfully coveted the wife of another man, but he stole her from the other man, and then he committed adultery with her, and fourth, he had her husband murdered. And although we know that David later repented of his sin, um, his sins, plural, He did suffer for the rest of his life from the consequences. Now, you know, God does forgive us of our sins, but we have to live with the consequences of what we have done. And all the misery 
of all the consequences that he suffered for the rest of his life because of this sin could have simply been avoided if he had turned his eyes away from that sight. That's why it's so important. We'll talk about how we have to protect our eyes and not maybe so much our eyes in this room. Maybe a lot of us are beyond that point in our lives. But we need to protect the eyes of our children and our grandchildren. So, so important where we take them and what what they see, especially in this wicked world. Now, there is a, as we're talking about, there's a definite connection between sight and sin. Although other bodily members, you know, are quite often the vehicles for lust and immorality, such as what we hear, um, what we maybe um, smell. <laughs> they try to put a lot of emphasis on that with the perfumes and colognes and everything, don't they? Um, and such as where the feet take us and what the hands do and all that. Yet there can be little debate that most of the lust which is lodged in the human heart is the result of what has been seen that should not have been seen. And when it comes to this area, women... We, women, can be just as guilty as men, if not more guilty, because uh, they off- we often, not you all, I'm not really talking to anybody in this room, I don't think, but women in general perp- often purposely dress in such a way as to be seen and desired of men. You know, they, they know how to incite men to lust, don't they? Arthur Pink, in his commentary, said this. He says, quote, If lustful looking is so grievous a sin, then those who dress and expose themselves with desires to be looked at and lusted after are not less but even more guilty. In this matter, it is not only too often the case that men sin, but women tempt them to do so. How great, then, must be the guilt of the great majority of the modern misses who deliberately seek to arouse the sexual passions of our young men. And how much greater still, listen to this one, is the guilt of most of their mothers for allowing them to become lascivious temptresses. temptresses. End of quote. Is that true? When you see a young girl with their belly button exposed and low cut and mini skirt, I, mean, I don't even know how they can wear those things. It doesn't even, I couldn't bend over. Oh, it'd be awful. Who do, you, who do you get angry with? The mother. How in the world could she let her daughter out of the house like that? It's terrible what they let them run around with. Just, mm. We just came from the beach this weekend, and it was cold out, and I saw all kinds of awful stuff. Yeah. Please, if you are a Christian, you have no business wearing a bikini, and you have no business letting your daughter wear a bikini. I don't care how cute it is when they're even little. Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. It would be wonderful if all young girls and women would dress attractively, yet conservatively. It says in the Bible that we're to have modest apparel. You know, I sent my kids to Christian schools, and a lot of people mock the dress standards at those schools. But you know what? When I went to, when I would go to visit them, I would tears would roll down my eyes because it was like such an oasis from the rest of the world. 
to see the girls with the skirt, long skirts, and just so conservative, young men in neckties. Oh, it's just like going back in time. You know, I might be old. When I went to college, I wasn't allowed to wear slacks. And I went to a big state university. But I had to wear skirts to all my classes. And we've just, we've, we've gone so far in the wrong direction. Young girls need the wisdom of us older women. They do. They need our help. Too often they are more interested in dressing to be in style. And they don't understand because they're, so much of it is they're naive. They don't know, they don't understand how men think. Men don't think the way they think. They just think, I'm cute, and I'm going to be in you know, peer pressure. I'm going to be in style with the rest of my little girlfriends. And they don't know so much what they're doing to the men. Now, some of them do know what they're doing. And they are also unaware of how cheap they look. I just want to, sometimes it's all I can do to just not say something to some of these girls. I want to say, don't you know that you look like a prostitute? But you know how cheap that is. Oh, and, you know, if you go to other countries, it's even worse. I have been to Europe not too long ago, and I have been to South America. When was that, last year or 2003? And I thought we were bad. I was horrified at how much worse they are. Oh, my goodness. Women our age dressed in skin-tight clothing. Skin tight, as tight as they can. I don't know how they, they must paint their jeans on. And spiked heels, walking around with the jeans and the tight, you know, and spiked heels. Women my age, and even older. It's just, and everything is sex, sex, sex. Much, and, and it's bad here, but it's worse there. It is worse there. We, are de- we definitely are living in a society of extreme sensuality. You know, I really can understand the disdain. I can really understand the disdain that the Muslims have for Western civilization. Because they see all this sensuality. And, and it, it makes me mad. And I understand how it makes them think that we're just so depraved. Because we are. Now, of course, they have their problems. I'm not justifying their whole religion and their mindset on other things. But I can understand when they watch uh, HBO. You know, their opinion of us is what they see on TV. And you know what the Hollywood crowd looks like. So they don't understand about you and I. (laughs) And that's how they judge all of us. But uh, all they see is a sex-craved immorality of our culture. Probably never has the state of marriage and infidelity and immorality been so low as it is in the Western world today. Mass media uses sex to sell its products. It uses sex to lure its audiences from everything you can imagine. Toothpaste to cars to, uh, ooh, some of the commercials are horrible. Awful, what is that? Oh, I won't even talk about it. Uh, Sex crimes of every kind are at an all-time high, as we know. While infidelity and divorce and fornication and all manner of perversions are massively being justified, the statistics of those who remain virgins until their wedding day is incredibly low. It's incre- I mean, it's very, very rare to have a couple standing at the, at the uh, altar to get married who are both virgins. 
And it's get, the statistics are going lower and lower age-wise until you're even down into the elementary schools now where it's rare to have young children as virgins. It's just horrifying. Um, and those, they're the ones that are laughed at. You know, the ones who are still virgins are mocked and um, scorned and ridiculed as being Victorian or really out of it. The philosophy of sexual hedonism prevails, just as it did in New Testament times, although I believe it's worse. The common Greek idea back then was meats for the belly and belly for meats. That's, you can read that in 1 Corinthians 6.13. That was the notion that um, biological functions are just that, natural biological functions, and that they have no, no moral significance. This was how the Corinthian church members were justifying their sexual misconduct. These are people in the church having all kinds of immoral behavior. And they were justifying it. They were arguing, as many people do today, that sex is simply a biological act of the body and that it is really no different than eating or drinking or sleeping. It is something that is natural, and there is no more sin in indulging one's sensual desires as there is in feeding food to the belly. That's what this little philosophy, well, that's not what I have up there, but meats for the belly and belly for the meats. However, the Apostle Paul strongly refuted that type of hedonistic thinking by saying the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Ye know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? The body is more than just biological, as God's ultimate judgment of mankind is going to demonstrate. They're going to all find out that truth one day. What men do with their bodies, what women do with their bodies, what young people do with their bodies will be accounted for on judgment day. For the believer... Our bodies are members of Christ. Our bodies are actually a temple of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies belong to the Lord rather than to us. It is not, therefore, to be used for any purpose that dishonors the God who made it and who indwells it. The only response of the Christian to sexual temptation outside of the marriage bond is to do what? Flee from it. That's the only response is to flee. The same hedonistic philosophy that so corrupted the Corinthian church of Paul's day is engulfing the Western world today. In many different forms, sexual license is destroying lives and destroying families and even destroying entire nations. We live in a sea of sensual excess. Sadly, tragically, this immorality has even invaded the church at every single level, from the, from the uh, lay people all the way to the pastors and the heads of the churches, from teenagers, uh, maybe even lower than teenagers, to midlifers, and maybe even into senior saints, probably. Furthermore, the utter havoc such immorality has wrought goes even beyond the relationship of the sins of adultery and divorce because it brings with it not only do you have you know divorce and and adultery but brings with it all the other, all kinds of other sins just think of all these uh, the um, diseases that have resulted from all this immorality but it brings with it too the sins of illegitimacy you know babies being born out of wedlock 
um, the sin of abortion, which is actually the sin of murder. We have all kinds of domestic violence. We've had the policemen at our house in the past year, probably in the past six months, we've had a policeman out to our house four times. Not for us. <laughs> I should clarify that. But um, because of domestic violence in people that live around us, and they come, they come out to our house and ask us where so-and-so lives. And last week, after I got back from Bible study, they came to our house because our cars, three of our cars had been broken into and robbed. They must have been very excited. From Who would think you have to park your, lock your car in your own driveway when you live as far back in the woods as I do? But um, Tuesday night, I got home from Bible study, the night Bible study, probably around 10 o'clock, and sometime that night, and I was alone with my daughter Connie. I didn't hear anything, and my, our, our watchdog is stone deaf. <laughs> so he, didn't, he is. He is so old. I don't know how he keeps going, but... He didn't hear a thing, and somebody came and went into all three of our cars, and they got a roll of silver dollars from my husband. They got, um, my daughter had a little coin box that had Connie's money written on it. I mean, hello, here it is. And they got from me, I had a little zipper purse on the floor of my car, and um, they had gone through my car. It was obvious, things were all askew. But they, they must have thought, ah, oh, strike three. I mean, not strike three, but we hit it three times because here's this little zipper person. They must have been so disappointed when they opened it up because all I had in there was some lip gloss. <laughs> <laughs> Fooled you. But uh, anyway, how did I get on to that? Oh, oh, yeah, domestic violence, all right? Domestic violence and uh, sometimes murder. Um, you know, a lot of murders have been committed because... One married partner walks in on the other one or finds out about it, and awful, awful. And suicides. Immoral acts are never just a private matter between two consulting, consenting adults, are they? Others are always, always affected. Think of the children who have suffered long-term effects due to the adultery of a parent. Or think of the damage to the body of Christ and to the name of Christ whenever a Christian is involved in something like this. I mean, the, the world loves to hear about a Christian falling, especially some kind of a Christian leader who's well-known, and they fall and everybody laugh, laugh and mock and say, well, look at them, they're no different than the rest of us. Now, another thing to think about is that many false religions and cults and, and heresies have their roots in immorality. One's desire, one's lusts, will affect one's theology. When a person's willful con uh, conduct contradicts his theology, one of two things is going to happen. Either his theology will change or his conduct will change. You see, when you became a Christian, you wanted to change your conduct, right? But if your conduct is ruling, you will adjust your theology to match your conduct. Many, many cults, many false religions promote immoral behavior. The Muslim terrorists, you know, are motivated to being uh, suicide martyrs to kill infidels, and all of us are infidels in this room. They're motivated by the promise that they will have access to their own private harem of virgins when they get to heaven. You see, it's all lust-oriented. The Mormon men 
who fulfill all the Mormon requirements on earth that are needful for them to fulfill in order to be good Mormons, you know what their reward is? That they will get to populate their own planet with their harem of wives. Again, lust-oriented. Many cult leaders have led very immoral lives, as we know. And we know this is also true, of course, with many pagan religions, with, with all their sex rites and their temple prostitutes and so forth. A wise man or a wise woman will do as Job did here. Got this up here. He will make a covenant with his eyes as to what he will and what he will not look at. Job had an answer to the problem of the eye gate. And you can imagine if he had a problem in his day, what do we have in our day? He, um, he used what we could call preventative medicine to guard his heart from lust. He made a covenant with his eyes. You see, he understood something that by the time of Christ had been badly neglected as part of God's truth. And that is, sin begins in the heart. Job was the first book ever written in the scripture. And if he understood that sin originated in the heart, don't you think the scribes and Pharisees should have understood that? They should have. Job said this. He said, uh, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? If my step hath turned out of the way and mine heart walked after mine eyes, and if any blot have cleaved to mine hands, then let me sow and let another eat. Yea, let my offspring be rooted out. If mine heart have been deceived by a woman, or if I have laid wait at my neighbor's door. For this is an heinous crime, yea, it is an iniquity to be punished by the judges. That's in Job 31. In our day, this would involve making a covenant with our eyes concerning what we watch on television or on videos or what we watch on DVDs, or the internet, and what we allow our children to watch on all of these things. For there's probably no area in which Christians are more rapidly falling than in what they allow to enter into their minds through these avenues, because they can do these things in the privacy of their own homes. We need to walk away from these kind of screens that are often in front of our faces. We are easily being desensitized. Did you know that? Like the frog in the pot of boiling water, we're being desensitized. Those impure things and scenes which horrify us, or horrified us in the past tense, the first time, are not quite so bad the next time. And pretty soon we sort of just get used to them. And we may even begin to laugh at them. But really, the last laugh is going to be on us. This applies to not only what we watch on the screens in our homes, but applies to the books and the magazines that we look at as well. Even some of the magazines that used to be relatively safe aren't safe anymore. All right, let's go on to quickly the deliverance from adultery. In verses 29 and 30, uh, Jesus presented the way of deliverance from adultery of the heart and of the eyes or of the act itself. And he used two graphic illustrations to do this. He said that if a person's right eye offends him or causes him to stumble, scandalizes him is what it literally means, then what is he to do? 
He's to pluck it out. If it happens to be an individual's right hand that causes offense and scandal, he should likewise dispense with it, cut it off. And notice that he said, if thy right eye causes you to sin. You know why he said that? Because we're all different. If your right eye causes you to sin, you might have to pluck it out. If your right hand over here causes you, you have to cut it off. Uh, Because we all stumble and fall over different things. One thing might cause lust in one person and leave another person totally unmoved. One might need to cut off one thing and another another. Um, But very obviously, you know that Jesus was speaking in figurative language, right? Because self-mutilation is a destruction of God's temple. He's not talking literally here about gouging our eyes out. He's already made it very clear that the real problem rests in the heart. Therefore, a literal mutilation of the body members would do no good at all, as some men down through history have found out. One of the fathers of Christianity named Origen actually did this. He got so convicted about his lust and that he could never completely rid himself of thinking thoughts that he actually had himself castrated. But it still didn't prevent him of thinking of things. And another man known as St. Anthony was convicted about his, uh, this area of lust. And so he removed him, himself. He didn't cut anything off, but he removed himself bodily to the desert uh, wilderness of Egypt, where he lived as a hermit for 35 years. And yet in his own writing, he admitted that the lusts and cares of the world still existed in the thoughts and imaginations of his heart and mind. Physical surgery of any kind, whether it's body members or the whole body in separation from society, cannot cleanse the heart. We know that. That's just obvious. What we need is surgical surgery of the heart. We need a circumcised heart, which, of course, only Jesus Christ can give to us. Only he can perform. And that's his point here, is that we need to give up whatever is necessary, even the most cherished thing we may possess, we need to give it up to keep ourselves pure before God, if it's something that causes us to stumble. In our present society, this may mean that we have to cut ourselves off from, uh, from most of what the world engages in. You might have to turn down quite a few invitations, although if you've been a Christian for a while, you don't get them anymore. <laughs> Uh, We may have to cut off the television set. Number one, young young girls raising families, please. We didn't even have a TV when our children were little. If you have one, make sure that it's right near where you are and that you can monitor it and that you can watch it. Watch what they, I mean, be, be like a guard, a sentinel. You have to protect your children. Internets, TVs, videos, the whole nine yards. We may need to cut out suggestive movies and even the daily talk shows, which seem to wallow in all kinds of sexual smut. We may have to cut away from many of our social contacts and unwholesome companions or friends who have a negative influence on us. We may even have to, um, we may even have to cut ourselves off from some of our Christian companions. You know, there are some Christians who might tend to drag you down in what they talk about or where they go and what they do. Might have to even separate separate ourselves from Christian brethren. We may have to cut out some of our reading material. 
As John Stott wrote, we may just have to become culturally maimed in order to preserve our purity of mind and hearts and the purity in the minds and hearts of our young people, the next generation. What person would not agree to to a necessary amputation of his arm or his leg if gangrene had set in and threatened to spread throughout his whole body and kill him? No matter how painful and how terrible the loss would be, most people would do it. You would have an arm or a leg amputated if you had been persuaded that it was necessary for your life to be preserved. So why then do so many refuse to do similarly for the salvation of their souls? Millions of people do not surrender to Jesus Christ because they do not want to cut themselves off from their pleasures. And Jesus says in these verses, it is far better to be an amputee than for the whole body and soul to go into hell forever. It will require sacrifice to surrender to God the carnal desires of the body, except, of course, you know, within the bonds of marriage. But it is a sacrifice of the lower for the higher. It's a sacrifice for the earth, of the earthly for the spiritual, of the temporary for the eternal, for the perishable, you know, the perishable for the imperishable. Only through the surrender of our will to God is it possible for him to them then impart his life and his righteousness to us. Only by receiving his life through self-surrender of our will is it possible for these hidden sins of the heart to be overcome. Whatever it is in your life that is a potential threat to the purity of your heart, the Lord's warning command is to get rid of it to cut it off, to cast it from you. He says, um, or Paul says, mortify, which means put to death, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, etc. I said etc. because I didn't want to read that word concupiscence. Is that how you pronounce it? (laughs) But put all these things from us. How are we to respond to the sensual stimulating things of this world which abound all around us. I think that the Lord is telling us not only to cut ourselves off from them as much as possible, but where it is not possible, we are to act as though we are blind to them, as though we had no eyes. Sometimes it is impossible to get away from them. You could be driving down the, the highway and there's a billboard right smack dab in front of you. Has some girl in a bikini or something, right? I mean, it's just... Everywhere, There's, you can't stand in line at the at the grocery store without, you know, act like we're blind. Look the other way. You know, it's not safe to take your children so many places, is it? It's like the grocery store. You have to t- tell them, speak to them, make a covenant with your eyes. I used to do that with my children when they were little. You know, I'd have them there with me, and I don't have to. I, I shouldn't be looking at it because if I'm looking at it, what are they going to be doing? They're going to be looking at it. So I'd say, kids. We're going to go through the checkout line now. Let's look at all the gum and candy. Now, that's dangerous, too. <laughs> but I, I used to not be able to take them into a video store. You know, I'd want to go in there and get, uh, you know, some ch- children's video or something. And I'd have to leave them out in the car. You can't take kids into a video store anymore. Awful stuff on the covers of the videos. You can't take them into most bookstores unless it's a Christian bookstore because of all the smut on the covers. You know, ask yourself too. You know, are you making a covenant with your eyes of what you read? 
What kind of novels do you like to read? Some of them can get really nasty and smutty. I hope that isn't what allures you. There are good Christian novels out there. Um, Anyway, so if, if we can't avoid some of these things, we are to act as though we were blind to them, um, or as if we were without feet to take us to the wrong places, or we were without hands to turn to the wrong programs, etc. We are to behave as though we actually had cut these things off of our bodies and are now blind and crippled so that we no longer see or do the things that tempt or lead us to sin. The spiritual principle, and I'm finished with this, the spiritual principle is that eternity is more important than anything on this earth. Purity is more important than any temporary earthly pleasure. Any sacrifice is worth preventing sin. It says in 1 Timothy 5, 6, She that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. Think about that. Have you ever met anybody, who, a woman who maybe lived her whole life for pleasure and she's just like an empty shell walking around and she's suffering the consequences from a broken marriage, from children who aren't saved and all. She that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. Yet while she liveth there is yet hope. Think of the woman at the well. You know, if you have committed the overt act of adultery as... You know, we're all guilty, all right, right along with you. That's what this whole thing is about, that we're all guilty before God and why we need Jesus Christ. But think of the woman at the well. She had had five husbands, and she was having an adulterous affair with a sixth man because it said she was, she was living with a man, a man who wasn't her own, so obviously he belonged to somebody else. And yet, did the Lord forgive her? Yes, he did. And did he use her? Oh, yes, he used her to reach her whole village for himself, and he's still using her today because we read her account in the eternal word of God. He's still using her mightily. So it doesn't matter what your past has been. Today can be the beginning of the, of the future, and he, you can redeem the years that the locusts have eaten. And we think about the, um, we haven't gotten to this story yet, but when the scribes and Pharisees, Brought the woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. Did the Lord forgive her? He did. And what did he say to her? Thy sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. And so that's the advice for all of us in this room. Because all of us have sinned in the matter of not only murder, but adultery. And Jesus just says to us, go and sin no more. Thy sins are forgiven. Isn't it wonderful that we have a forgiving Savior? Thank you. I went over time again, Terry. Oh, and I just have to shoot me. <laughs> and then you'd be a murderer. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Father, help us to never be satisfied simply with refraining from the external aspect of your prohibition. Save us, Lord, from being pharisaical. Save us from being hypocritical. Give us that loving and and longing desire for inner purity that we might be the disciples that you would have us to be. And help us to remember that our bodies are members of Christ and that they are for him and not for ourselves. Help us to be examples of, of modesty and soberness and discretion and honor and submission 
to the younger ones around us who are always watching. Lord, help us to be sentinels in our homes and to guard and protect what our, the next generation, our children and our grandchildren, our nephews and our nieces, what they see, because we do live in such a wicked, evil word, world, Lord. I pray that you would use each of us this week as your salt and light and bring us all back safely, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen.